You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta a España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are at Chorrete Cati. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber and I'm the host of this episode. And I am in at on Soret de Cati, a place whose name means trickle in the local dialect, but where the drama flowed in rivers this afternoon. On such a day, it seemed only correct to call upon a writer and commentator noted for effusive and romantic prose and soliloquies. And hence, please join me in welcoming the mustachioed, wistful gazer himself from a couple of hundred kilometers south of here in Almeria. It's Fran Reyes. Fran, how are we doing? Hello, Daniel. How much I have enjoyed this introduction. I might use it for my Tinder biography. <laughs> oh, too much information already. Uh, Fran, uh, the pronunciation of X's in the local dialect. Shoret? Shoret. Shoret. Fran, uh, tell the listeners where we are because we're somewhere very special. Not uh, not just Shoret de Cati, but somewhere more specific than that. Where exactly are we? What are we perched on? We are, we're, we are in the base of, monu- of a monument to cycling that was installed here. Uh, but problem is that the statue that crowned this monument is no longer here, which probably makes us pieces of art, by the way, <laughs> I think of it. But yeah, it's a, it was a bronze statue, uh, two meters tall, two meters wide. 300 and kilograms, apparently, it weighed. Yeah, exactly, 300 kilograms, and it was stolen overnight, three months and a half ago, just in the wake of the Spanish election. Yeah, this was a statue that was... When was it installed, Fran? It was installed... Um, after a few a few editions of the Vuelta had come mm-hmm. to this finish, and um, we're just outside the hotel, the eponymous hotel, the Hotel Choret de Cati, and well, in a very short time, this climb, after it was premiered in the Vuelta Espana, we talked about that a few days ago, it built quite a reputation, didn't it? It was called, it was referred to as the Mortirolo of Alicante by some. And, um, that's big, huh? That's, yeah, that's a big comparison. That's a big, that's a big compliment to pay a climb. Um, but it became so sort of infamous that, as you say, they wanted to, well, make it a real monument, um, not just a sort of metamor- metaphorical monument, but a monument of cycling in these parts. And, well, the statue was built here. The names of everyone who has won here um, adorn the side of this monument, including, incidentally, it's not just men's cycling, uh, Clara Koppenberg, who won here in 2019. Hopefully, well, we think Primoz Roglic's name will soon adorn the side. Um, that's not too much of a spoiler, I hope. And um, Fran, there's still no one, it seems, is any the wiser as to what happened to this, well, the, the 300 kilo bronze cyclist. Um, 300 kilo, it wasn't Jan Ulrich. Um, <laughs> but um, a very, the very heavy cyclist that was stolen. Who, who knows where it is? Have you got any leads, Fran? No, Can you help I, the investigation? Who would do such a thing? You know, what, uh, what usually happens here with someone uh, steals bronze or copper is that they melt it and send it in the black market. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was the case with this statue. It would be such a shame because after all it had a value as mm-hmm. art. But uh, it happens all the time in Spain, really. I mean, if there are construction works and there is no one to watch for the materials, someone comes and steals steal them, you know, particularly, as I said, the copper and metallic materials. Fran, we're very familiar with statues to cyclists, and one cyclist in particular. There are, I don't know, maybe a dozen Marco Pantani statues dotted around Italy on various, usually on various climbs, but there are a couple in places where he owned property or spent short amounts of time. Um, have you got a favorite one in Spain or are there any favorite ones in Spain? You're, you're laughing, you're giggling, why? Well, because uh, my favorite one in Spain is uh, Samuel Sanchez's statue yes, uh, yeah, in Oviedo. bottom of the Naranjo in yeah. Oviedo. Yeah, exactly. On the, the roundabout, I think, square, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I like it for, <laughs> for for several reasons. One was that a, t- a former a teammate of his told me that one day after one World Asturias stage, they were going back to the hotel and he, te- he told him, hey, 
wait, wait a second, instead of going straight to the hotel by bike, we're going to take a small tour. And they made a five, 10 kilometer tour just for him to show his teammate the status of him. Uh, for a while... I would do the same. Eh? I would do the same. Yeah, of course. Feel honored. For a while, it was his WhatsApp profile picture. <laughs> I can tell you also that his Telegram profile picture is the sign of Calle Samuel Sanchez, Samuel Sanchez Street. I don't know where it is, but that's his Telegram profile picture. And on its day, I went to this uh, statue. The statue portrays him biting his gold medal, the one that he won in Beijing in 2008. And I took a pretty cringe selfie on which I beat the medal along with him. You know, I can mm. send it to you. We can't post yeah. it. We can't post no, it for some reason. You're, you're right, Fran. You're right. We'll just imagine that. And Fran, we mentioned this the other day, Samuel Sanchez's statue in Oviedo, because there are lots of interesting statues in Oviedo, including one to Charlie Chaplin. No, not Charlie Chaplin. What am I talking about? Woody Allen, Tino Casal as well, has, has a statue in downtown Oviedo. And Fran, um, we'd better talk about today's race and it was a thrilling one and um, i was going to ask you one other question before we do i can't remember what it was maybe some oh samuel sanchez was there not some controversy about the statue when he tested positive when he had his mm, doping case why have a vague memory of there being calls for it to be taken down i don't have maybe it. not maybe not fran can we have the tale of the etapa please el resumen de la etapa the tale of the etapa. Of course, Daniel. Your wishes are a pleasure for me to obey. Stage 8 of this 2023 Vuelta a España, ridden over 165 kilometers between Denia and Choret de Cati. It was a bit of a hectic start, really, for a bunch that was as frightened about the four categorized climbs spread over the course as it was about the final wall-like climb to Choret de Cati. They were also frightened about Jumbo Visma because after what they did the other day in Cabalambre, they could foresee that they were going to set a strong pace. And about the and, weather. And also about the weather because that's a, a, that was a factor of uncertainty. There was awful weather announced. So far, it hasn't rained, but we, it might be time for raining as we record the podcast, you know? We are recording I outside. My paraguas, yeah, my uh, umbrella. I, I do have one too. <laughs> we are, well, we are good, well prepared. Anyway, there was this early 14 rider break at the beginning, but it was shut down after 30 kilometers. Afterwards, 30 strong group went clear with Arkea Samsic's Christian Rodriguez as the best place rider in GC, yet he was four minutes in uh, arrears of uh, red jersey where Lenin Martinez. Back in the bunch, uh, Group AMA, FDJ and Jumbo Bisma kept things together. And uh, in the Puerto La Carrasqueta, Dutch Gregario Robert Gessing took the reins. On its summit, 55 kilometers from the finish, the gap between the brake and the bunch that was reduced already to 40 cyclists was clocked at 3 minutes 30. With 40k to go, Movistar teams of the year Lazcano, Loro Destinies, Andreas Kron, Anter Marches, Rui Costa, and Brian Victorious, the America Russo, established a four-man group at the front. Yet their attempt was hopeless, as Jumbo Bisma pulled strongly and reeled them in at the foot of the final climb, indeed, with six kilometers left to race. Once in the steep slopes of Shore del Cati, Sopkus was the first to attack, with Renko Evenpool setting a fierce pace in a favorite group on which there were only six other riders. Primoz Roglic, Jonas Bingegaard. Can we, can we say Roligard from now on? Since they are I riding like together. I like Roligard. it. Roligard, okay. yeah, yeah, I like so, it. So it was Roligard, Enric Mas, and a UAE Team Emirates trio with Juan Ayuso, Max Soler and Joao Almeida. Kuz was eventually brought back and the eight men sprinted for the wing on the fast downhill to the finish line, with Rogling taking the best of Evenpool and Ayuso, while his teammate Sepp Kuz took the red jersey from Lenny Martinez, who was dropped early in the climb and crossed the finish line one minute ten seconds later than the stage winner. Fran, a lot of changes on general classification before, before we get to them. Kusligard, can we get away with that? Kusligard? Kusligard. <laughs> it, it, well, it goes far, but mm. it's good. It's good. But Roglic has a, I feel that Roglic's role in that, Roglic has too small a part of yeah. that um, appellation, which may not reflect actual events. Um, Fran, 
So let's look at, well, some of the winners and losers briefly. Um, let's look at general classification first of all. Sepkus, as you said, is now in the red jersey. Um, second, Mark Soler, which I wouldn't have foreseen this morning. He's moved up one place. He's 43 seconds down on uh, Sepkus. Third place, Lenny Martinez. A very valiant defence of his red jersey today. Wout Poles, who not a lot of people have spoken about yet in this welter, Two minutes, five seconds down. He's in fifth. Then Mikel Landa. Uh, there are some wags I noticed on Spanish social media suggesting that he leads the real Vuelta a España. But Landa has found himself in a very good position. Yeah. Um, Especially he, given that he has been very sick this first week. Huh? He's he one of those who have been sick, is he? Not, not, in, not in his stomach, but he got. Uh, he was under the weather. He had a strong cold ahead of the race. It got worse. Uh, in Barcelona with the rain and the awful weather that we had and uh, the other day in Javalambre when I w spoke to him he was constantly gasping for breath and speeding out he was still undergoing that but he told me that he was feeling much better after a few awful days and Fran the probably the worst week of the welter in terms of the course for him is out of the way. So he could not have dreamed of um, being in a better position. And then, to some minds, the real general classification starts with Remco Evenepoel in sixth. Primoz Roglic just seven seconds behind him. Jonas Vingegaard just four seconds behind Roglic. And then Enric Maas on the same time. And Juan Ayuso, two minutes and 52 down. So he is just over 20 seconds, 21 seconds behind behind Remco Evenepoel. Um, there were other sort of significant movers today, L losers, I suppose you would say. Geraint Thomas had another tough day. I spoke to him this morning. Um, he had both knees bandaged up at the start this morning. And he said that, well, both knees were hurting. Um, at this point, I think his left knee was slightly worse than his right, but he didn't have um, particularly high expectations for today. And he's now in 23rd place on general classification. Eight minutes and 43 seconds down. Fran, um, there were other notable performances which we'll discuss in due course, but you were at the finish line as I was, and well, our attention, I think I speak for everyone, was, was drawn immediately to Remco Avenepoel's reaction when he came over the line. And those of us who sort of chased him um, to where his soigneurs were waiting saw a very angry Remco Avenepoel. Um, so angry, in fact, they didn't want to speak to the press, press initially, and we didn't know what it was about. We then found out that he was frustrated at not having known or not having been told that he was sprinting against Primoz Roglic for the stage win. But I've, I've watched the replays, and I'm not sure it really would have changed anything. I mean, it, it looked like a pretty full-blooded sprint from Remco. Exactly. Uh, I, to be honest, I saw... Two riders that were pretty upset at the finish. One was Remco, and hearing the reasons, I don't think that he could have done anything better. I mean, he did a super climb. He was there setting a pace that no one could overtake because they, they, they didn't, it didn't look as it though. This is, did it? It didn't. I mean, uh, the Mark Soler had the theory that uh, actually both Primos and uh, Jonas. No, Rogligar uh, on itself, uh, they both have the legs as to pass Remco anytime they want it, but they just kept things together. Mark because said that. Yes, mm. they, they kept things together because they wanted Sepp Kuz to take the red jersey, which would indeed make a lot of sense because yeah. you, you still have the red jersey, but your leaders don't have to go through the hassle of the podium duties and this kind of stuff. And the moment when Kuz came back. Um, having made his attack on the Chorette Cati climb, the moment when, in theory, it would have been the time to counter, that was where, that is where the climb flattens out um, a, a few hundred metres before the summit, and it was probably no longer uh, an ideal move at that point. But yeah, I was slightly flummoxed by um, Remco saying that. He, he did speak to the media later and, and, well, did clear up that that was exactly why he was so frustrated. But there's always drama with Remco, isn't there? Not in a bad way, but in a, in a sort of exciting way as well. You can never take your eyes off him. And as you said, I thought he, um, he sort of policed that group brilliantly on the upper slopes of Chorette de Cati. Very quickly took the decision that the thing to do was to get on the front and to ride a fast tempo to stop 
the the Yumbo Visma Hornets, the sort of killer bees from well attacking in in sequence one after the other, and um, yeah, it did work really nicely. Um, Fran, without further ado, let's hear from some of the protagonists today. Um, let's hear from the first, the second half of Rogligard. Was it Rogligard? Rogligard. Let's hear from Jonas Vingegaard. We're going to hear from Robert Haysink, who was really instrumental in uh, an imposing, impressive Jumbo Visma performance today to bring the break back. And let's hear as well from one of the members of that breakaway who had their hopes dashed. Um, it's our good friend. King Kenny Elisande of Little Trek. Yeah, I mean, I'm of course super proud of uh, of how we rode. Uh, we rode super well today. Uh, the guys pulling on the front and uh, yeah, the guys on the last climb. So was was perfect today. What was the decision? Was the decision that Primos would always go for the stage win in a scenario like that? Yeah, in a scenario like this, yes. Um, but we also talked about that we could go on the last climb. So, uh, but there. Remco was super strong, so I think for us it was almost more about following than attacking. Jonas, the other day you seemed to be on a sort of upward trend and you were getting better. Did that continue today? Did you feel even better today? Oh, not necessarily. Uh, didn't have my best day today, but uh, hopefully I can have that uh, the next two weeks. Well, yeah, it was, was, was a bit of hard work to get uh, that, that group back. It was quite a big group. Um, and uh, well, yeah, obviously uh, it's all, it's all worth it if it's uh, if it's for these two uh, two leaders with, uh, and uh, and we're really happy with it. obviously with the stage, but uh, maybe even a bit more with the red for set because it's uh, well deserved. How much uh, did it cost you guys out there? How much effort did you have to put in it? Because you got the you got the victory and you got the leaders jersey, but you didn't get rid of uh, of Remgravenpool. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite some work, that's for sure. Um, but uh, during um, the work, I was thinking of day after tomorrow. <laughs> it's a rest day, so I can recover a bit. Time trial afterwards, also recovery day. So then we'll be all uh, charged again. And uh, I mean, it doesn't. That would have been even better if that also would have worked. But uh, that's not cycling. It's not PlayStation, right? So uh, you have to uh, put your leaders in the position to uh, to um, yeah to do great things. And then uh, obviously uh, it all has to fall in its place. And uh, for now, we're doing a good job. We're all wondering who of the three will win the the world. Uh, what is your bet? I'm I'm uh, at the moment I'm, uh, I'm I'm okay with all three actually. But let's let's continue racing like this and let's continue uh, enjoying the the what the teamwork we can do like this. And then uh, we'll see who, who comes out on top. Thank you, Robert. Just one question. Um, in 2009, it was a very different day for you on this climb. Um, you were fighting with the sort of GC guys at the front. Did you think about that today? That was funny, actually. I was with two really young guys, and then I uh, with uh, uh, Sean Quinn and Poole uh, in the end. Yeah. His name is, I think. And uh, I, and I told them actually, you realize when you, that you're re- getting really old when you. Or on a climb, and halfway through, you realize, flip, I've been here sometime before. I thought it was 2008, though, so I'm getting that old today. I can't even remember the, the, the year it was. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah, then I was back in the day. It was GC times. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I tried everything to be in the break. Um, first, we were a group of 12, I think, on the flat. Then we went again uh, at the top of Valdebo. Uh, the group was too big, to be honest, 31. The, the cooperation was not ideal, and then um, yeah, it went on a strategic path a little bit on the flat. And then, yeah, I just uh, tried to, pla- to place Juan P at the bottom of the, of the climb, and uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I would have need still three minutes to after up there like this. I would still need three minutes to win with uh, this tip climb. So yeah, I mean, I, t- I took pleasure at least, you know. So was I, I prefer to suffer the, in, a, in a breakaway than at the back because I think on, the, on this kind of buckle at the back it must be hard or so. No, was it? Yeah, very hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was also hard at the back. So hard in the front or hard at the back? I prefer to be rather at the front now. And did you know? Were you pretty sure this morning that Jumbo Visma would work all day, which is what happened? No, actually, actually no. Uh, actually no, because at first it was planning to be raining, so the, the road would be slippery. I would think maybe they would play it safe. But yeah, you know, they are this kind of team on this park home, and they, they can grind the whole peloton. Yeah? They can 
destroy everybody and then uh, Primo's, eh? Why not, eh? Voila. <laughs> you know what I mean, huh? Last thing, Kenny. Did you, um, how do you enjoy the last clutch? Enjoys the wrong word, but you know, when you know that you're not going to win the stage, could you sort of, well, savor the moment a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I enjoy because, uh, yeah, I, I, I had a good day uh, in the front, then I could still do my job to place Juan Pei in a good position at the bottom, so at the end I couldn't do more, so at the end I can just uh, enjoy the people around, you know, try to do some stupid thing with them, and yeah, I'm one day less. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, friend, the last voice we heard there was King Kenny Elisand. I had a lovely chat with, with Kenny this morning. It was shades of Fran Reyes, echoes of Fran Reyes, because he was in wistful mood, Kenny. Um, he was reflecting on a lot of things, reflecting on uh, Lenny Martinez being in the red jer- jersey. We drew this parallel yesterday between Lenny Martinez and King Kenny Elisonde, um, riders of similar stature. Kenny was surrounded with similar hype when he turned professional, a very promising climber then. Um, but he certainly, Kenny's very impressed with the way Lenny Martinez is riding. But Kenny was also just talking about how brutally difficult this sport has become because of riders like Lenny Martinez and because of that generation, the Kian Utebrooks of this world, the Juan Ayusos, who are so willing to make sacrifices that Kenny's generation didn't necessarily have to make um, 10 or 12 years ago when once the season was over they would they would take four weeks off six weeks off and um, he was talking to me this morning about how the pressure has become pretty sort of suffocating to lead the same life that these young guys are, are leading and to make an awful lot of sacrifices and um, yeah Kenny gave it a good go in the break today but unfortunately as I said his hopes and those of many others were dashed but Fran young riders they haven't known another sport other than this one in which you have to weigh what you eat watch what you do outside of the bike there was this moment in time 10-15 years ago in which someone will tell me with awe and surprise that whenever a professional rider went to a bar, the first thing he did was finding a stool in order to sit down and not get his legs tired. Still, yesterday I was talking to a master, master 40 cyclist from Alicante and he was telling me that he was happy to be there watching the finish line in Oliva, but that he was a bit worried because in two days' time she had the Alicante Master 40 Time Trial Championship. So this is the evolution of the sport even to the most ridiculous extent on which even recreational riders are worried about getting their legs tired. And even recreational riders are working with nutritionists and working with coaches. So I understand Kenny's frustration because it, it, it is an evolution of the sport that has cut in the middle and has cut the best out of this generation between 90 and 95, which has never been able to express its full, its full potential, I believe. We'll hear, Fran, later in the episode from another rider of Kenny's generation who will make similar points, um, make similar sort of observations about the, the Gen Z contingent of the professional peloton and how difficult it is to keep pace with them. Um, Fran, let's go back in time, shall we, to this morning in Denia. We expected, as as I said earlier, a pretty filthy day um, weather-wise, but we also expected uh, an exciting day, and we thought there might be a bit of a, a shootout between Jumbo Visma and Remco Evenepoel. That's what we saw, but... Um, well, let's hear from Primoz Roglic, a characteristically short and mischievous impish, I would even say, interview. Can you call it that? This Anyway, this is what Primoz Roglic... Um, said this morning about what was in store at Shuret the Cati. El Diario Roglic. Well, how are you feeling, Primoz? How are the legs? How's the confidence? We see, we see. On the last, on the steep climb, how much? So that was Roglic. Brief to the point, as I said, impish as always. Um, 
Now we're going to hear from Remco Avenepoel on what he was thinking about today's stage. Today's very explosive finish this morning in Denia. Much more elaborate, much more expansive as Remco tends to be these days in the mixer. And this was Remco this morning in Denia. El Diario Remco. The Daily Remco. Uh, not too much. I uh, had to... Uh, look up on, uh, on YouTube to see some uh, videos about it because uh, my teammate Julian won there last time so uh, it looks like a shorter but a very very steep one so uh, yeah maybe uh, not the the hardest climb of the whole Vuelta but uh, if you have some bad legs you can lose some brutal time there. How much were these explosive climbs 20% how much was that a part of your preparation a big part of your preparation for the Vuelta? Uh, not a big part, but um, yeah, I think nobody really focuses on like 10-15 minute climbs. It's more, especially with Tourmalet and all those climbs coming, it's more about the one hour climb. So um, yeah, it's just something that we have to take. But of course, everything that it was, that is going to be before in the stage is already going to be pretty brutal. So uh, it's going to be a pretty uh, long and, and hectic uh, day today. So Fran... All talk of who this climb was going to suit sort of paled into kind of insignificance, as it often does. Um, what we tend to find in Grand Tours is that there is one rider who's clearly superior to all the others on, on the climbs, on all of the climbs. And uh, we see evidence of that whenever the road does go uphill. But in this Vuelta a España, it's quite difficult to know. Well, it's certainly quite difficult to know what direction this race is going to take. Also on the basis of what we saw today, isn't it? Because Remco, we feared that he might be ill. We feared that he might be not in as great form or not in uh, the, the form that we thought he brought into this race um, when he got dropped the other day. However, he was back to, well, back to full Remco today, wasn't he? Yeah, because when I find in this world that is very interesting it's just, of course as you say we don't know still who he, who has the upper hand when it comes on face to face showdowns in the mountains yet the narrative is built I feel around Remco Van Poel you know it's what Remco Van Poel does is what makes the race on what on one direction or the other the other day in Javalambre, since he was dropped, then Jumbo Visma uh, pulled, pulled the trigger, really, to try and kill him. Today, since he wasn't dropped, he set the pace and Jumbo Visma waited, indeed, on his wheel once Sepp Kuss was caught in order to beat him in the finish line. So the narrative spins around him. And that's very interesting and tells a lot about the character of Remco and Poole. You were describing them, Primos and Remco, and, and I found it quite a spot on. Well, I mean, it, it is quite funny when we say that something is a spot on just, that we, that just because we agree with that, you know? But yeah, I fully, I fully agree with your description. And I think that it has an effect on the racing as well. I don't think that Jonas Vingegaard has as much impact on the races as his Palmares says. Really, because there's a sort of a, a gravitational force, there's a magnetic force around Remco that kind of sucks the narrative of the race with him. Exactly. Okay, if if you know, that's not to sound too, I don't exactly. know. Exactly. Even even if afterwards, whimsical. If it's not, to, if, if that doesn't sound too whimsical. Yeah. No, but I think it's the case, at least from the spectators' point of view, because later when you speak with the riders, uh, today I was amused. And it, it was clear that they have had the conversation between them. Uh, three different young riders told me, young Spanish riders, told me how frustrated they were because uh, Jumbo Visma wouldn't even leave the scraps for grabs. Because their style of racing, the way they pace the peloton, makes it impossible for the breakaway to make it to the finish unless something really, really... Uh, extraordinary happens as did in this stage of Tour de France I can't recall which one exactly in which there was this huge crash as the breakaway was being established 
and the break we got a, got a very big gap and thanks to that made it to the finish otherwise it is nearly impossible that leads to frustration but it is a frustration that sporting wise makes no sense if they are stronger than you that, that, that lack. Yeah, the other thing with Yama Visma so far in this World Class Spain, they've had one or two problems. Wilco Kelderman's come down uh, twice, I think, but they, they haven't had any major issues. They haven't lost any riders, and that's sort of been a bit of a rarity for them, um, as, as good as they've been in Grand Tours. You know, they've had Roglic crash out of the Tour de France. So they're at, f they're at full power. Uh, so any tiny scrap of hope there might have been for the breakaway um, on a day when Yumba Visma were interested in going for the stage win, that's completely gone because they are steamrollering this race, aren't they? Mm -hmm, exactly. And what I, and by the words that Mark Soler was saying, that and also by the words that we were referring earlier from Mark Soler, I think they probably have a bit more, uh, uh, some more card on their sleeve. You know, they uh, they still have something else to play. Uh, the Tourmalet stage again, you know, I said the other day it was a silver bullet. Afterwards, they have another two stages with pretty long climbs. And it's there when they can wear Remco Evenepoel out, which is, I think, the strength or the skill that they can put into play, their superior endurance compared to a younger less experienced and less Grand Tour proven rider as Renko when compared to Roglic and Bingegaard. Fran, how much of a distraction is Sepp, or, or maybe a, a decoy for Yumbo, from Yumbo Visma's point of view, but um, you could also call him a distraction. I mean, how much does he, he actually matter in this whole one? Narrative was the word I used a minute ago. You know, him attacking today on Chaudet uh, de Cati, obviously um, it, it seemed to sort of coax Remco to the front of the the front of proceedings at that point, and he did have to set the pace. But can he almost ignore Sepkus? Well, he can't. I mean, I think he, it is an added factor of stress for Remco and Poole. Especially, you know, if you think that you don't have a Sepkus yet. You know, you don't have... <laughs> There is, there is this excellent Alberto Contador beat in Eurosport, on which he messes up English very finely. You know, he talks about muscles instead of muscles, and, well, and one of the things that he says is, it is important to have a cus. You know, it is very important to have a cus, really. And uh, in this case, Suda Quickstep doesn't have a cus yet. They believe that they will have a cus with Mikel Landa in the future, but. For Remco, he doesn't have a rider with, with on him on whom he can rely in order to answer any move from Sepkus. He still has a big job on controlling both Roglic and Bingegaard, and then there is this third guy. And another piece of bad news is that Movistar doesn't have that guy either, and UAE they might have, but I still wonder how are they going to play their cards. Mark Soler, we have seen him right. Well, hmm? Juan Ayuso this morning in the mix zone, he hmm. said that Mark Soler was their Sepkus. Was their Sepkus. Yeah. Okay. okay, and what's the role of Joao Almeida then? What will be Joao Almeida's role in the next two weeks? Look stealthy and um, make everyone forget that he's riding the Vuelta España, which he's doing very successfully so far. Yeah, I mean, today, when I, when I, there was a, this moment on which there were three Jumbo and three UAE, and I was wondering who the third UAE was. You know, for a moment I thought Finn Fisher Black was having a day of his life, and then I realized that it was Joao Almeida. Uh, he's an excellent rider, don't get me wrong. I, li I, like, and I like him, and I like the, st the way he races, because he's so counter-trend. You know, he's countercultural in this sport on which most of the big names are used to take the reins. You know, they are, so to speak, they are courageous. And uh, Joao, on the other hand, it doesn't have anything to do with courage, but he, his way of racing, which is not that shiny, which is not that so you like him because he's boring, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, I, li I like him because he's boring. He's <laughs> defiantly boring. I, yeah, I, I did like uh, Paco Mancebo. I did like Sergei yes. Gonchar back in the day. You know, I did like Cadel Evans. There's an element. There's an element of that with Roglic. Um, you one might say the typical sort of modus operandi of 
Roglic is quite boring, that the, the classic, the sort of quintessential Roglification, which you could say, if you take Chris out of the, out of the equation, you could say that's what today was. Um, you know, never really put your nose in the wind and then win, win the sprint. Um, but he's turned that into something that's so bad or so boring, it's exciting, <laughs> perversely. Yeah, exactly. It is, but it is the perfect villain or narrative on which Remco even Poole is the hero, you know. And about Sepp Kuss, there was a point that I forgot to make. The relevance or the importance of uh, Sepp Kuss in the bigger picture is also to be strongly defined by how he performs on Tuesday's ITT. No, if if it he is if he does the best time trial of his life and he doesn't lose much time to Remco, we might find him in a position in which he can legitimately contend for victory. Part part of me, Fran, almost thinks that that would be a shame um, if Sepkus. I, I just don't want Sepkus to waste two or three years of his career pursuing this. Uh, Um, sort of false dawn or this um, illusory goal of becoming a Grand Tour rider. We've seen it so many times in so many different ways. Some riders who have had to lose weight to do it, some riders who have had to, well, become better time trialists, maybe even put on weight to do it. And it's rarely worked. And there have been, there have been examples of riders completely changing in nature to win Grand Tours. Bradley Wiggins is a good example, um, but there have been other examples. But um, Except because he's so perfect in his current role that uh, part of me hopes that he remains in that role and thinks he should remain in that role. And I think deep down he believes that he should remain in that role as well. Um, it was, I thought it was um, sort of pertinent to to reflect on Sepkus's journey um, as well today, him taking the first leader's jersey he's ever had in a major tour. And just to sort of well remember that he came from a minor, I think it's fair to say, American team. He had a history as a mountain biker and then he had some good results in 2017, was picked up by uh, Jumbo Visma. And in the first sort of six months, as you would expect, Jumbo Visma really struggled. And there was a, a, a nice symmetry to him taking the yellow, sorry, the red jersey today because his first race with Jumbo Visma was in was the Volta uh, La Comunidad Valenciana. Is it called the Volta? Yes. Yeah. And he didn't finish that race. And that was in 2000 in the spring or early season 2018. That was the pattern for that for the, much of that season 2018. And then he had his sort of breakthrough at the Tour of Utah that year. And he, and he's never really looked back. And he still has this sort of wide-eyed, naive quality to him. He sort of has the air of a kind of Huckleberry Finn type character, sort of setting off um, on an adventure with a haversack over his shoulder. And um, yeah, and, and and that's also kind of why I I, I kind of think Sepkus. Uh, ought to or I would like him to remain as he is because he, he fulfills that role in the in the broader sort of pantomime that is professional cycling and he fits in the role you know it is not a role that he has been assigned to by someone he perfectly fits in the role it's like we were saying about Joao Almeida and as we were saying about Evan Poole and Roglic in a sport that is basically fiction Because it's basically fictional because we barely see 10% of what a rider does in a, in a day. We have to figure out what he has done most of the day, most of the time. And we have to figure out the dynamics of a very large and very complex social group. It is so important to have a character, to be identified and identifiable for not only for the media, but also for the spectators at home and even for the teams themselves, because even the teams themselves, sometimes they also don't know what the rider has been up to. So as long as he accomplishes the role that he has been assigned to, it is fine and it is all right. It is important to have a character to keep it. And Sepkus is doing great at that. He certainly is, Fran, he certainly is. Fran, one thing that struck me today, thinking back to other occasions uh, when the peloton has come up to Chorette de Cati, and, and this was a climate, as soon as I saw it in the Vuelta back in 2000, I, it captured, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that it, it had captured the imagination of the Spanish cycling watching public um, with those uh, early um, visits, uh, Chava Jiménez winning here, Eladio Jiménez. Um, but one of the reasons why it did that was it was, it was so extreme. And we had these, well, two in particular, 
um, in the first sort of decade of Choret uh, de Cati's history in the Vuelta a España. These extraordinary collapses. One you talked about the other day, uh, Fabio Roscioli, the Italian rider, who was in a break and, well, um, completely capsized, didn't he? He lost six minutes in he, three kilometers. He lost six in three kilometers. And then there was another one in 2009. Um, Ryan Taramai, the Estonian, Estonian rider, was a very young professional at that point. He was riding for Kofidis. He was in the Estonian National Champions jersey. And at one stage that day when the Vuelta visited in 2009, it looked very much as though he was going to take a breakthrough win. And, and an easy win at one point. He looked like by far the strongest rider in his breakaway group that day. However, it did not end well. We've spoken about this before on the podcast um, I think the last time we came up here in 2019 or 17. No, 2017, um, we also spoke about it. Um, but today, he was Ryan Taramai, who's riding the Vuelta, now 35 years old. He's very much in demand in the mix zone and very much enjoying, sort of perversely, reliving that, I suppose you could call it, fateful day in 2009. So Ryan Taramai is the subject of today's Encuentro del Día. El encuentro del día. The meeting of the day. Y ahí Taramae sufriendo probablemente como nunca en su vida. Pero con ese aliciente, que es un triunfo de etapa en una vuelta grande. Rein Taramae, cabeza de carrera. How strange is it that everyone, well, remembers this one day, 14 years on. I mean, it wasn't the day when you won. Does it, what, what, what does it make you feel? Yeah. For me personally, I I still feel that same pain. I, I remember everything because it was really really tough. It was very hot and uh, and uh, really steep climb. And yeah, in those times you don't have enough cares. Now I have 34 in the back, 36 in the front. In the past I had 39, 23. So to get the over of 23% slopes or three and a half K, it's uh, really almost impossible. And um, everybody remember it because everybody was sure that uh, this guy gonna win because I drop uh, the others without coming out of my saddle, uh, staying in my position just and everybody dropped. But then, yeah, it's turned out catastrophe and uh, they speak it's one of the biggest crack of the latest year, so of course they remember. Ryan, we don't see it on the television, but I saw a picture today that it looks as though you actually got off your bike. Is that right? Yeah, I stopped uh, alongside the, uh, to the road uh, for 10 minutes just to uh, a rest. And I remember one uh, spectator came to me, put me water uh, on my head, another put me apple in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> it, I never had some uh, this kind of uh, souvenirs, memories. And when when we watch it back, it just looks like so long ago. You know, the way that riders look on a bike looks totally different. What do you think when you look back at those images and think back to the start of your career? Yeah, generally the level is just so higher, much more higher because everything is much more professional. And uh, to be honest, I believe that that was the era uh, between doping and uh, between uh, really professional training systems. So that was space that nobody really know it nothing. Uh, the youngsters was not so strong because we don't know it, how to train, how to prepare, but now, uh, 15 years old, they train already like professionals, and when they get 20, they are Vuelta leaders jersey like Martinez now. But that times was fun. To train was harder because uh, you did it a lot of mistakes. Sometimes you did six hours training and you eat only salad because you think that you, you need to be skinny, but... Uh, now everything is changing. You know, you know everything. If you trust their team, uh, they tell you everything. How to become strong and how to maintain strong. It's actually much more easy now. Do you wish you were starting your career now? Would that be a lot easier? That's also hard because yeah, there is much more talents now and uh, and it's much more harder to make results. For example, before uh, there was maybe friend of bus driver uh, of team who this friend have son and he was good in cycling and they make him sign. 
but now they, they look the numbers. It's not this uh, connection politic anymore. It's only about numbers. So they, if you have good numbers, they discover the good talents and they bring uh, like that uh, the guys on the cycling. It's uh, not uh, the word against word that uh, I like this guy or like that guy, but now it's look numbers. This is the best and now everybody looked the riders like this and then the average level is much more higher. So, yeah, I think it's much more harder and uh, it was a little bit more easy before. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we crank up the car stereo and terrorize the Spanish fauna with the schmaltzy ballads and clunking electro beats that have served as official anthems to the Vuelta a España down the ages. Today, Fran, the year is 1991. Were you born in 1991? Yes, yes I was. It was. July was it the 23rd. year of your birth? Yes. Ah, July 23rd. Tremendous, tremendous. Today, the year is 1991, the year of Fran's birth. And once again, there seems to be some confusion, bizarrely, about what, in fact, was the official anthem of the world. So, Fran, do you know why um, there are, whenever I look these up, there are always two different songs listed, uh, depending on which source I consult? There, there are years in which there were more than one okay. song, and there was even a full Vuelta album soundtrack. Ah, that would explain it. Um, anyway, you know the drill by now. Some sources, including Spanish national television's online archive, says one thing, other websites say another. I'm fairly confident, though, when I say that for the second time after their Mas in 1989, Madrid New Wave Quartet La Unión did the honours with Damelo Ya, or Just Give It To Me. The world started on April 29th, the same day that one of the deadliest cyclones ever recorded hit Bangladesh, eventually killing approximately 130,000 people. That day, Melchior... Melchior? Melchor. Melchor. Yes, he's Catalan. Ah, that day, Melchor Maori took the first Mayot Amarillo after a team time trial in Merida, won by Maori's team. And the Catalan rider would retain the race leadership for all but three of the next 20 stages. His cause was no doubt helped by the cancellation of the Queen stage to Pla de Beret due to adverse weather and since 1991 a legend has also flourished about a certain canarian guy sorry i'll do that again and since 1991 a legend has also flourished about a certain canarian gynecologist Egofemiano fuentes and the contents of a package that he boasted about couriering to maori before the decisive time trial in Valladolid, three days from the end of the vuelta Maori would finally win by just under three minutes from Miguel Indurain, who, and this was the closest Big Mig ever came to winning his home Grand Tour. Later that summer, he, of course, began his five-year reign at the Tour de France. Fran, um, you were born in 1991. Wow. Wow. What was the first Vuelta you watched? I think uh, my first Vuelta was probably 99, well, ni uh, 98, I remember already listening to the Spanish radio in the at night because there was this moment in time on which the Vuelta 
nearly two decades really, in which the Vuelta was more of a radio show than a TV show. There okay. was, yeah, because there, there was uh, this uh, big radio host by the name of Jose Maria Garcia, who made a cause out of being the leading guy and about having a huge influence on every domain of Spanish society. And a show of his strength was projecting the Volta to become a very big sport event. So this alliance of sorts that he made with the organizers at the beginning of the 80s uh, undertook him to be for two decades covering the race on a very intense manner that would be even unfathomable today. And I'm talking of a guy who had a radio a live radio connection with the team cars of the Spanish teams, you know, and he would complain live in the radio to this, to Javier Minguez or Eusebio Unzue whenever they were uh, not doing what he thought they should do, you know, and he would, he would ask them to start pulling or to make a rider attack because the race was not being exciting at all. So, uh, his relationship with the Banesto team uh, was marked by this moment at the end of the 80s, I think it was 87, on which they wanted Pedro Delgado to be a commentator during the Vuelta, mm. even though he was still a professional rider. Mm. Delgado chose to go to with another station, another radio station, and that provoked the anger of Garcia, which, who for two years ignored the Reynolds team going as far as to call them the team from Navarra and never citing their sponsor <laughs> because he even pressure he put under pressure Unzue he put under pressure Chavarri and he put under pressure also the sponsor it's on itself you know mm. because he wanted to have Delgado and he couldn't and this was carried on until 98 Volta. In the 98 Volta, there was this duel between Chava Jiménez and Abraham Olano. You're going to tell me, this was the one where the, um, Chava Jiménez, no, Abraham Olano's wife was, there was a live connection with her and this caused all sorts of Ex problems between exactly. two of them? Yeah. Exactly. There was, uh, Abraham Olano had the upper hand on the GC, but Chava Jiménez was a more enticing character. So, um, Garcia supported Chava Jiménez, and uh, was certainly diminishing Olano as a rider. Uh, as you said, there was this crucial point, this low point, on which he made a live conversation between Echavarri himself and Carmele, the, uh, who was Abraham's wife. I think wife. it was the stage to Lagunas de Neila. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember that detail, really, but uh, I, I remember hearing to that on the radio every night because even my father and my uncle who are not interested in cycling at all were super invested on following this uh, this Volta because of the spat between Olano and Chava and because of the spat that there was between Jose Maria Garcia and his long time uh, lieutenant and now rival Jose Ramon de la Morena. So whenever you, whichever station you connected to, you would find two complete opposite versions of the race, and there were constant interpolations between them. Fascinating. I wonder if we can arrange that a live radio link up between the cycling podcast and one of the team cars. Which team would you pick? Which whose team's tactics would you like to meddle with? Movistar, Movistar. Yeah, but you know, in terms of getting something funny, I would definitely go with Jake Alula because I find that their DSs and their yeah. their stuff are are pretty cool. And in terms of getting interesting things, I would go with DSM because I mean the way that they have this uh, this seeming tension with the between the riders and the staff you know it would be so interesting to hear that if it, if that is expressed on the radio or it is only expressed whenever they want to adjust their saddle eight <laughs> fran very quickly um since you mentioned movistar what did you make of movistar today and emric mass in particular well, it was a fine stage for them, really. I mean, they managed to put two riders on the brake in order not to have to pull as they did the other day. And then afterwards, Enrique uh, was as where, he, where he had to be. He didn't have the legs to power away from the favorites, yet he didn't lose time. I mean, he only lost two seconds. 
in my opinion, it is going better than expected to Movistar, considering that Enrique has had a pretty short preparation for this Vuelta. And I am very curious to see how his performance evolves over the next two weeks. Today at the finish line, he seemed a bit angry or upset. I mean, probably he, I don't know if you noticed, but, yet, but today he all struggled in the downhill section to the finish. He got gapped uh, by 10 meters from uh, the wheel of uh, Bingegaard, I think it was, and uh, he had to take a right turn uh, very, very fast, you know, and he went a bit larger than he should have, and he risked a crash. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't close to crash, but his trajectory, you know, his cornering was not as clean as the as the corner of the of his rivals and this probably creates a, a bit of stress in his, in his mind given his past struggles it was a very steep it's a very steep swoop down to the finish here isn't it i actually felt sorry for the riders um, because i think all of them had their team vehicles on back on the other side of the climb so they once had come down that little descent, the steep descent to the finish. They then had to go back up over the summit of the Chorette de Cati climb to get back to their team vehicles. But um, I know it, it, it could, in certain circumstances, be dangerous, particularly in wet weather, this would be a dangerous descent. But it does make for a spectacular finish. And this is one of those climbs that has a very sort of strong, well-defined visual identity. I think it's instantly recognizable if you turn on your TV and you have seen finishes here before. And um, yeah, it is a bit of a classic. I'm, I'm quite fond of it, I must say. Yeah, and it also was uh, set a trademark for the Vuelta because it is the original Murito. You know, the original wall, yeah. of which, which is a, a style of sharp uphill finish, explosive, one to three kilometers long with double-digit gradients that has been used in the Vuelta time and again. It is no longer that present in this, in this race, uh, this, in this edition. I think... Uh, we, there are a couple of days in Asturias when we might... There are a couple of new ones. Yeah, there, there, well, there is, uh, yeah, there is the stage in Cantabria to Bejes, which is... Um, yeah which is, it is a wall. Tomorrow we are tomorrow we are having a sort of wall. Today's was sort of a wall as well. But I don't think that we have many more. Maybe Laguna Negra, we can consider that to be a, another wall finish. But for a few years, the Vuelta was the race of the walls. And uh, luckily, the time has passed and now it has a more balance. And I think a very good design route and over the past year. Also, mm -hmm. I would say, um, crucially, the three weeks are pretty well balanced. I said earlier that Mikel Lander had had his hardest week, or the course was probably least suited for Mikel Lander this week, but actually all three weeks are probably going to offer a similar amount of drama, suspense, entertainment. Fran, talking about what we've got ahead, let's look ahead, shall we, to tomorrow. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Well, Fran, yesterday's dinner, um, one question I've got for you. Coca pizza. Is that, are you familiar with that term? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's kind used of here in Alicante, especially. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, what do you understand by that? Because that's what I had last night. So it's a, it's a pizza, only that the base of this pizza is different. It has a bit more of a sugar taste and it is a bit thicker. It was very good. It was um, kind of similar to an Italian focaccia or a French, southern French fugas. Um, that's what I ate last night with aubergine on top and it was quite delicious. A few other things as well, some vegetarian croquetas, um, some nice monastere wine and things are improving on the gastronomic front, Fran, as we maybe, maybe because we're edging down the country to, towards your neck of the woods, to your to your home region, um, although we're not going to make it into Andalusia, are we? We don't even touch Andalusia this no, year, do not, we? No, not this year. That, that, that means that the next year we will have 10 stages in Andalusia. I'll be, I'll be there. Do you know what, what my dinner was yesterday, man? Go on. A banana and two Boldan beers. Oh, fun. I mean, really, really. I mean, it was. I, I, I made it to the hotel at 11 p.m. and I was so tired that I thought I only wanted a beer. And then I thought a banana wouldn't kill me. And that was my dinner. It was not, I mean, I, no nutritionist. I mean, I, I didn't wait the banana, by the way. 
maybe that's the reason of my low performance today in the gym. <laughs> Fran, we were talking yesterday about Miguel Martinez, the father of Lenny Martinez, and how he lived for about four years on just carrot sticks from Lidl, 99 cents, because he couldn't afford anything else, so he said. Fran, what about tomorrow's stage? Please tell us what we have got in store. Well, I, I'm afraid to say that tomorrow's stage in Murcia won't probably be a, a blockbuster, really. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so, really. Uh, well, stage 9, 184.5 kilometers between Cartagena and Caravaca de la Cruz, and an uphill finish. Between kilometer 48 and 60, we are climbing one of the sites of the renowned Alto de la Perdiz. This is Alejandro Valverde's favorite climb. It is also the key point of the Trofeo Guerrita, which is an under-23 race that Juan Pedro López won in an extraordinary fashion back in 2018 with a 70-kilometer breakaway on his own. Uh, but, you know, I have great memories of that day in Guerrita, but there is one memory that you and I share that outclasses anything Juanpe might ever do. It was in the Verdit that our beloved colleague, Richard Moore, you and I, recorded together a podcast some years ago on a tiny home on a day on which Rich was undergoing some heavy back pain and waiting for us lying uh, <laughs> besides a pool. Do you remember that? At the f- at tomorrow's finish? At, uh, no, uh, at the tomorrow's Alto de la Perdiz. Which is a no, midway to the stage. This. I don't remember this. Yeah, I, I remember it. Cl- I remember it clearly, and it's fond a fond memory for me. And well, back to the stage on itself. Both the initial and the final sections are flat and straightforward, which probably won't help animating the race. We are going through Mula, which is the home of uh, Luis Leon Sanchez and his brother Pedro Leon, a famous footballer. And we are going also th- through Calasparra where they grow a rice that is deemed to be the best one in the world for paella because of its high absorbance rate. Uh, it's quite spherical. Anyway, it will came down to the regular climb out of Caravaca de la Cruz to the Collado, the eponymous Collado. Uh, ramps at steep at 20%, intertwined with downhill sections uh, will await the riders. And here comes my question for you, Daniel. Next year, Caravaca de la Cruz is having a year of jubilee, that is, jubilation. Will tomorrow's be the day of its roglification? <sighs> no, because I think tomorrow looks a bit more conducive for a breakaway. Mm, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, it, it is straightforward in the middle part, you know. If a peloton really commits to try and keep the gap down to a certain margin or even to narrow it, they have a perfect, a perfect 40 kilometer section of flat ahead of the climb. Who's going to pull hard, Fran, to keep that together tomorrow? I, you know, Jumbo Visma had a difficult day tomorrow. I'm um, sorry, today. I don't think there's too much for them to gain tomorrow. Um, I think that they are probably looking ahead to the time trial at this point, the time trial that comes immediately after the rest day. Um, there are a lot of riders a long, long way down on general classification now, the riders who lost another 5, 10, 20 minutes. So it shouldn't be too difficult for uh, a break to go away with riders in it that, that pose no threat to Sepkus's red jersey. So I don't know, maybe a straightforward breakaway tomorrow with Jumbo Visma sort of taking the reins and really winding things up close to the bottom of the final climb. I'm not sure. Well, you know, uh, it's just a matter of you and I convincing one team each and acting <laughs> as yes is tomorrow. Okay? I, I take Ineos. Okay? Um, I'll take Movistar. <laughs> okay, Fran. Many of you know that Sudal Quicksteps James Knox is keeping in an audio diary for the cycling podcast at the Vuelta a España, and James sent in his latest entry just as we were about to hit the airwaves tonight. Here we are, hotel again, stage eight. Big old day out that. Proper day out that. That was hard work. In a silly way, kind of more enjoyable than, than yesterday, to be honest, just blasting around. Uh, ever a start of a race where. Nearly all the riders know the roads, it's that one amount of teams that are down in the Calpe area doing riding around Valdebo and stuff, so yeah, straight out with Denia, 20k first climb, very hard, and then yeah, chilled for a little bit, and then unsurprisingly, it was hard again. First FDJ started for a bit, and then Jumbo came and joined them, and then it was new finish, uh, new last sort of 50k for me, didn't know that, they had not been that far over, and I had not done the, the last climb which was hard. To be honest, I was feeling quite good 
sort of stayed up there with the boys all day. Was hoping I'd last further on the climb, but after about 500 meters of them, I think guys, I would guess guys are doing burners. Um, I was in the sort of back of the group with maybe just 25 guys left. Felt my legs going, um, realized there wasn't going to be any other help, so just at that moment sat up and went easy. Let a few stragglers come past me. Thomas was fighting valiantly after his get down, after his spill yesterday. Yeah, 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 but Remco looked good. Cuss into red, which I am happy about, to be honest. I like Cuss. Very nice guy. Just maybe that's not the party line. I think we're deep into uh, Alejandro country down here, down by Mercia tomorrow, I think. I've seen his Strava enough times, so I think we go out and we do a climb, one of the first climb tomorrow, which is prime valor climbing territory on his little uh, Mercia training group. I've been, I've been asked to elaborate on what Remco said into the camera yesterday. Um, just a bit of fun. He seems to enjoy mocking British accents or enjoys doing it himself. So, yeah. Alongside he's getting thrown around a lot and for some reason I think he just thought it was a good laugh to throw me under the bus line on TV but anyway, we'll take that. Okay, Fran, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you again. We will be having you again, I'm sure, in the coming days. Um, I look forward to trying that rice tomorrow and um, as I said for, to things improving from a gastronomic point of view we've seen a roglification at Chorette de Cati we've seen another fantastic stage to go with the others that have finished here over the years Fran have a great evening and make sure you get yourself a proper meal hopefully tonight. hopefully The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. <laughs>